So grateful to be in the house of the Lord. And that song is a good song leading into our sermon today because we are coming from Romans chapter 8. And the title of today's message is, How Does Freedom Feel? And I think those words that we just sang really explain what that feels like. But it is this promise that we get from the love of Christ, knowing that he will love us for all of eternity. Now, we do live in a world of people. All of us, in some sort of way, want to be free. Every one of us wants to be free. But what does freedom really actually mean? Now, obviously, freedom certainly differs based on the person who actually wants the freedom. There are certain freedoms that you may even take for granted until you realize that you don't have that freedom anymore. Complaining about the heat on a sun-scorched day is a luxury that someone who is bedridden can't do. And complaining about being stuck in the house all day is not something that a person who has uh, no home can do. To each of them, the other person's prison would actually mean freedom for themselves. Right now, many of us have an idea of what would free us from whatever our proverbial prisons are. For some of us, freedom looks like having enough money. For some of us, freedom looks like having a good spouse or a nice family. Or for some of us, freedom is, I just want to be left alone. And I am at least here to say to you today that if those are your ideas of freedom, then you are most certainly setting the bar too low. The bar is too low. We are going to look today at what Paul has to say about what freedom actually is, what it actually looks like. And we're going to see if that freedom that is afforded to us as Christians actually leads to us living a satisfied life, a life fulfilled by, with, through, and in Christ. And so to do that, we are looking at Romans chapter 8, and we are going to start at the first verse. Romans 8 and 1, very familiar text. There is, therefore, now, No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ 
does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to jump into this text, God, we just pray that you will open up our hearts and our minds, our spiritual ears, our spiritual eyes, and help us see what thus says the Lord from his word. God, I have heard this passage mangled and used as an unnecessary freedom to sin, but God, what this actually frees us from and frees us to is so much better than that. And so help us see, God, what freedom really looks like and how freedom really feels. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Romans chapter 8 very well may be the most popular, the most beloved passage out of the entire book of Romans. It starts off by screaming, we are free. And for many, these verses are extremely important for those who can feel the hopelessness of their sins. Paul comes out quickly here, doesn't he, by saying that the bar of freedom should be much higher than we probably think it is. And I can imagine as high as he could get his proverbial hands in the air, he says, by the way, those who are in Christ... For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation for them. Living in a world and in a context where everyone loves the Lord and everyone believes in God, I think Paul is making a very clear statement here. You can say what you want about your standing with God, but ultimately it boils down to this. Are you in Christ and is Christ in you? You can use a a lip service. You can talk about your church attendance. You can talk about the day you got baptized. You can talk about how much money you give. But ultimately, are you in him and is he in you? This is not any different than what he has been communicating through the entirety of this letter. He said, if you remember, that we are baptized with Christ. We are buried with him. We have been crucified with him and we have died with Christ. And we can only do that because we are in Christ. There are lots of people who profess a Christianity, but who have not died. If you have not effectively died to who you were, you cannot live in Christ. And that is what is being communicated here. Being in Christ means that we have moved from distant admirers of his teachings and influence, but now we have completely 
handed over the reins of our life to Christ. And for that, Paul declares emphatically that for those of us who have done that, there is no condemnation for us. I remember being younger and hearing people get really excited about this text, about this passage, about this word condemnation, but I didn't really know what it meant. I got people who were excited about it, but I didn't understand what that meant for me. What does it mean that I am not condemned, that I have no condemnation? But it begins by understanding what condemnation is. What is condemnation? (laughs) To be condemned, we are only, first of all, truly condemned by one source, and that is God. You cannot be condemned by anyone else the way that God condemns. To be condemned by God is the finality of having that final verdict rendered to us which says that we are, in fact, guilty of our sins and likewise, we are dead in those sins. It is that unchangeable, that permanent condemnation that awaits all who deny Christ until their dying day and that ultimately leaves them being eternally separated from God. This means that, just so we're clear, condemnation cannot come from Satan. It cannot come from your enemies. And it most certainly cannot come from the hyper-religious people who put anybody in hell for doing everything. So Paul's, Paul's point here is really twofold. If you are in Christ, you have escaped the wrath of God. You have escaped the wrath of God if you are in Christ. And for many people, there is a comfort in this text that they really shouldn't find. There are many people who are not in Christ who look at this and say, look, oh my God, I'm not condemned. He says that we are not condemned and they stop right there. Don't read any else of the text and say, look, the Lord said I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned. I can do what I want to do. I can live the way I want to live. But there's that caveat. There's that wrench that throws everything off. Only those who are in Christ have escaped the judgment and condemnation and wrath of God. That's important for us to know. So if you are in Christ, you have escaped the wrath. But you should also not be moved by the wrath of those who may say degrading or harmful things about you, but don't have the power to actually condemn you. Jesus makes his point clear. He says, why do you fear those who only can destroy the body? All they can do is kill you. But rather, you should submit yourself to a higher authority, one that not only can destroy the body, but can also destroy body and soul in hell. There is ultimately one person that we must all subject ourselves to, and it ain't horizontal, it's vertical. We are all subjecting ourselves to Christ. 
In other words, we are all subjected to a higher court. Now, for the unbeliever, that isn't a good thing. They may be applauded. They may be loved by men. They may be celebrated. Certainly in this life, some of the most anti-Christ people are the most applauded in our world, and they don't feel any condemnation in the life that they live. They are far from condemnation. But... If they do not repent, they will have to answer to God in the highest court. Likewise, as believers, we may feel the pressure of being condemned by this world. We are mocked. We are called insensitive. We are called bigots. We are called stupid for believing in something that we can't see. But again... We are not judged by a court of men, but rather we are judged by the highest possible court. And yes, while they may cancel us down here. If you truly know the Lord, not only will he not cancel you, he will not condemn you. How does freedom feel? It goes back to what we said about peace some weeks ago. If I am free from the wrath of God, then I am also free from worrying what people who aren't God may think, what they may say, or even what they may do. As Christians, I have the freedom not to concern myself with every idle word spoken about me or what the liberal agenda is doing or the hyper conservatives are doing. The only person I have to live to please is God and God alone. You know how freeing that is? To not have to worry about keeping up with the status quo. Am I driving the right car? Do I have the right job? Did I marry the right person? Do I live in the right neighborhood? Am I making enough money? When I am only trying to please Christ, nothing I do from the outside will ever satisfy him. It is only about what has happened to me on the inside that matters. And if I have been declared righteous by God, justified in his eyes, there is not a thing that I need to do to justify myself to anybody else. I ain't got to prove nothing to anybody else, because ultimately, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it doesn't matter if it's written on a statue, on a monument, it doesn't matter if it's written in the history books. If it is in his book, you good. It's the only thing that matters. I am free from worrying about the external realities. Now, let, let me tell you something. Me being free from men is not so that I can lower the bar and say, because I don't need to concern myself about what people think about me. Now I can do whatever I want. It's actually raising the bar. Oh, no. What may appeal to you, you may say, well, if you pay your tithes, if you go to church, if you take care of your family, you may say that's good. But what does the court of Christ say? 
To you, that may look good, but if that is not coming from a sincere place and a pure heart and clean hands, no matter how many of those good deeds I do, they may look good to you and you may applaud them. But only Christ can see the intent and the motivations behind why I do what I do. So I am not looking for human approval. I am not looking to be seen as righteous by this world, but rather I am looking only for the approval of God. Do you think that's freedom? (laughs) Absolutely. So why don't most of us walk in that freedom? Why are there so many of us who are Christians who can't get over what they said or how they looked or what they did or the things next door that are happening to us, or even our own sins. Why don't most of us walk in that freedom? I think there are several reasons. But for many Christians, we have had tattooed on our brains that anything that we enjoy, well, that might be sinful. And so as we have been free from the penalty of our sins, many of us have not freed ourselves from the staleness of religiosity. You know, those extra do's and don'ts that were created over time that have nothing to do with our faith or our sanctification. Those things like that, what Paul addresses in Galatians when they were saying, well, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And he said, why would you again entangle yourself in such a yoke of bondage? In other words, if you are free from God's ultimate condemnation, why are we again condemning ourselves and why are we condemning others? And we know because we learned a few weeks ago that this freedom that we experience as Christians, it is not a freedom to sin, but rather a freedom from it. So we don't need anybody to be the Holy Ghost correctional officers in the church, because if we are saved, there has to be trust in these words. There is no condemnation. And Paul is reiterating what Jesus and John had already showed us. John says in chapter three of his gospel that those of us who believe will not be condemned. Those of us who are in Christ. But he also warns those who will not believe have already been condemned. And Jesus goes even further in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them 
and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have fulfilled my joy in themselves. I given I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just like I am not of the world. Y'all, this is our assurance. Christ has so securely set us in himself that there is no way that he can lose any of us. There is no way that we can be taken away from his salvation. And there is no way that we can take ourselves away from his salvation. John says that only those of us who can leave the faith, he says, by the way, they left us because they were never of us. If you are firmly fixed in Christ, who can pull you out? Nothing. No one can pull you out. And so his spirit, which gives us life, has set us free from the law of sin and death. So what has Jesus done that the law couldn't do? Like I said last week, where the law only identified our sins, Christ not only identified them, but he has treated them. He has healed us from our greatest sickness, which is our sins, which is why that Isaiah text is so important. When we think it's about just physical healing, it's actually talking about the worst condition we were in, which is our sin. And what does it say? By his stripes, you are healed. By the wounds of Christ, we have been healed from our greatest sickness, our sins. And every single one of us was born sin sick. And there is one remedy for it. There is no political agenda. There are no campaigns. There are not enough handouts to fix what is wrong with us. Only Christ can heal us the way we truly need to be healed. Christ has come and treated our condition. He has done what the law, weakened by our carnality, could not do, and that is condemning sin. Again, let me be clear. The law is not the problem here. I like how Martin Luther put it. He said, suppose a sick man decides to treat himself by drinking a few glasses of alcohol every day. Only to get worse, the more he drinks. That man then, much sicker than he was, goes to the doctor to figure out what was wrong with him. And he finds out that the doctor tells him that by drinking this alcohol, you actually 
made yourself much worse thinking that it was going to make you better. The doctor said that this alcohol will only be of benefit to you when your original condition is fixed. God's law until our original condition is healed works nothing in our lives. Think about it. If you aren't married, vows don't mean really anything to you right now. If you are not renting an apartment, you don't care about the terms of a lease agreement. And if you don't work at a certain job, you don't care what their handbook says. Similarly, the law of God means nothing to us. Full of sin until we take up residence in and with Christ. Then and only then will God's law come alive to us. Its value and its health then becomes life to us. And for us, Paul says that we set our minds on the spirit and not the things of the flesh. Again, he is not saying our physical bodies are bad, but it is rather our minds which are at war with God, which causes the flesh to be at odds with him. And what is our what are our instructions from John? He says in first John two and 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That means if you are a Christian. Despite what you may have heard. There are no excuses for you being carnal. There are no excuses for you being overly invested in material things. There are no excuses for you to be overly interested in things that pull you away from Christ. But I will add this to that. There really isn't a comparable level of freedom that you will feel than when you have been released from being fulfilled by this world and its values. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't enjoy a nice vacation. That doesn't mean that we can't enjoy a nice house or a nice car or good finances. But now that we are in Christ, we are free from the belief that those things are the remedy. We are free from the idea that those things will fix what is wrong with us. Think about it. I mean, I really want you to think about it. Think about how you felt when that thing that you had overly invested in, whatever that thing was, whoever that thing was, think about what you felt when that thing disappointed you. When you hoped in that job or that house or that car or that woman or that man and it came crashing down 
How did you feel? Did you feel great? Oh, I would love to reinvest more time in something else like this. Or did you feel hopeless? Did you feel sick? Did you feel broken? The hopelessness that you felt about any of those other things, Christ promises we will never feel about him. We will never feel it. We will never feel, if we are Christians, what it means to actually be forsaken by the Father. Y'all, when Jesus is on the cross, those aren't just words when he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ain't just saying words. He who knew no sin was forsaken on the cross so that we would never have to experience that level of forsakenness and abandonment. True freedom. And Paul makes it clear. He says, unless you are in Christ, you will not please God. Why? Because if you are alive in your sins, then you are dead to Christ. But if you have died with Christ, then you are dead to your sins and you have been raised in the newness of life. And look at what Paul says here. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which dwells in you. And that means that that car or that house or that man or that woman or that job or that money, those things that apart from him that dominated your life, you can now freely enjoy them without submitting yourself to them. I remember this man had come to a dealership and he was looking to buy a nice, reliable car for his recently licensed daughter. And he needed it, obviously, to be affordable. Now he gets there and he sees basically two cars that were within his price range. But he was confused. One of the cars was seemingly used and in need of a lot of TLC, but the other car, to him, appeared to be flawless. The paint was immaculate. The tires were clean. It had all the bells and the whistles. Now, skeptical, the dad asked, is there anything wrong with this car? And the man said, no, everything works just as it should. Hesitant, the dad said, well, if that's the case, let me just take it for a test drive. And if it drives well, then I'll go ahead and get it. Well, the man said, oh, well, I wouldn't try to drive that car if I was you. (laughs) The father said, why? Looking curious. He said, oh, because it doesn't have an engine. 
He said, now, why would you try to sell me a car that does not have an engine? And the salesman said, because I thought you wanted a car that only looked good, not one that was good. Now, you see that beat up car over there, the one you didn't ask me about? He says, well, that car actually has a brand new engine, and I know it doesn't look great, but it runs better than any other car that I have. If we are going to be faithful believers, it will not be because we simply look the part, but it will be because we have been given a new source of life, a new power to carry out God's purposes for our lives. And we may not look as good as the world. We may not be as eloquent or as good looking or as famous or we may not make as much money, but it ain't about what's happening on the outside. What has happened on the inside and what has happened for us is that these decaying, broken vessels on the inside, we've been given a fully functioning, working heart that we didn't have before. And that our dead hearts of stone, which gave nothing life, have been turned into hearts of flesh by which we can now live for Christ. And the joy that will come, y'all, in this life will be that we are now debtors to Christ. Not debtors in the sense that we would ever attempt to pay him back. But in, we have seen what happens when someone gives up their life for ours. And your only reasonable response to having a man give up his life for yours Here's my life right back to you. Oh, this is what you've done for me. You have my life. You have the whole of me. And our response to that is that we will freely give ourselves to him. It moves that our ultimate desire now is to please God. That is what freedom, y'all, truly feels like. I only need to please God. I'm not trying to keep up with anybody. I'm not trying to be better than anybody. I just want, when I stand before him, one, for him to actually know who I am, and two, for him to say, well, done. You good, you faithful servant. Over the few things that the earth provided you, you were faithful over. That's all I want. I don't want to be a king on this earth. I don't want to have my kingdom and my mansion built here on earth. I want to be known by my Father. And we know the warning, that warning that none of us thinks is about us. There are going to be many in that day who, when asked, 
Do you believe in God? Of course I believe in the Lord. He will say, you? No. You I never knew. But what about all this stuff? I did all the stuff, God. I checked all the boxes. I dotted every I. I crossed T's that nobody else was crossing. He's going to say, you weren't in me. You didn't do that for me. You did that for you. Depart from me, for I've never known you. Y'all, I don't want that to be any of us in this room. I want us to know that when we say these words, I am not condemned, then we can mean it. We can have the surety of our faith and the assurance in knowing that if I'm in Christ and he's in me, nothing can separate me from his Love forever is a long time. (laughs) But guess what? That's how long he'll love us, those of us who are in him. And there is nothing, not a thing in this world that can separate us from his love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. For this reminder, God. God, I have felt that there are things that I have done that would separate me. God, I have felt that there are things that I've thought, there are motivations that I've had that I felt like could condemn me. But the promise of Scripture is if you have saved me, truly saved all of us, We are in you forever. Your love will abide in us and with us for all of eternity. And there is nothing that can separate us. But more importantly, there is nothing that can condemn us. But fair warning, God, to those of us who who do not know you. We also know that those of us who do not know you, there is a condemnation awaiting if there is no repentance. And so, Lord, we pray now, if there is anybody in this room today, if there is anybody watching who doesn't know you, who doesn't feel the freedom of a life lived in and for Christ, that you would disrupt their life, God, that you would overcome their wills today and that you would save them through your power. And that you would see that they would die to themselves, be crucified, buried, and raised in the newness of life with Christ so that they likewise can experience what true freedom really feels like. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.